Good morning. Oh. Right, the group's quieting down. I guess the rain this morning. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for September 30th, the last day of September 2015. Um, I had the announcements circulating. Of course, tomorrow's a, uh, tomorrow is go live day for enterprise system integration of Cadence. So um, be prepared and be thankful and appreciative of our clerical administrative colleagues as they survive overnight at 2 a.m. and those who are on call with bed placement also good luck. Um, next week, we only have the title of The Theory of Everything by Dan Albert, giving grand rounds for rheumatology next week. So <laughs> it's a longer title, but um, it's uh, provocative. Um, it's sort of as our kudos today, I want to touch back to last week when we gathered for our state of chat and talked about uh, the culture of safety being the important first step on our journey to high liability and, and how we're going to make sure everybody, and everybody means everybody, is um, engaged in this culture and in this training, the error prevention behaviors. Because <clears throat> I got another a nice email. Jessica LaPearl feeds me lots of good stuff. But she had bumped into a parent and an adolescent who used to be a frequent inpatient. Uh, this adolescent has significant disabilities, including wheelchair dependent. The mom has trouble with her back. And as the patient has grown into adult size, has struggled to provide full care. It's been several years since uh, Jessica had seen them and was excited to hear their life had been with less frequent contact here, fortunately, fewer admissions to Chad. But mom said, quote, even after all these years, Chad continues to have exactly what we need when we need it most. She described how her back continues to be a challenge in providing the care that her daughter needs. But then when they entered the bathroom near Four East, she burst into tears because she saw an adult-sized electronic changing table. She did not know who to thank but wanted to know that somebody made a difference. And um, so our folks in engineering and the folks who build the place and the Charlie Welches of the world and the Dan Jansons are part of our care team, even though they're not professional caregivers. And that's why we're all in it together. Um, and this was four East, not five East, but, but the gratitude comes in surprising ways. So keep that in mind as we go through the day. We have, um, Another and a wonderful list of speakers that Sean Ralston has invited to join us from the, from the National Connections, and Sean's going to introduce Dr. Schroeder this morning. Thanks, Keith. Um, uh, about four years ago, uh, I was thumbing through my paper copy of pediatrics, and uh, um, I was just uh, arguing with Sharon and, and Sam uh, Casella about whether I was old or not. And the fact that I'm thumbing through my paper copy of pediatrics proves that I'm old. Uh, uh, and um, I came upon a, a perspective piece that was entitled um, Safely Doing Less, um, the Missing Component of the Patient Safety Dialogue. And um, this was written by, by Alan Schroeder, our guest speaker today. Um, and uh, the senior author on this was Tom Newman, um, who many of you know his work. He's done tremendous work in, um, in multiple different areas, of, uh, including an uh, investigation of the, um, the infant sepsis, um, jaundice, all these things. So I read it, you know, sort of thinking, oh, this could be, this could be good. And, um, and actually, it was brilliant. You know, it, it was so brilliant that I felt compelled to tell everyone I knew about it and to, to blog about it and to just get really excited about it. And ultimately, um, that led to Alan and I becoming friends and then writing papers together and, and doing work together. 
but but I but I think what Alan's going to give us today is is his perspective that sort of was distilled down into this commentary that that just um, really is sort of a brilliant take on uh, how we can be more safe in the hospital. Um, in, in terms of um, of Alan, now I'm we're, we're friends, and I know him well enough to know that he um, went to undergraduate somewhere, and, and then he went in and got a, a medical degree somewhere also. And, and then he went to pediatric, to pediatric residency, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and then he got an academic general fellowship somewhere. And then he got a PICU fellowship somewhere. Uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but I, I think it's, um, for the most part, um, you don't necessarily care um, where he comes from. He comes from Stanford and, and UCSF, for the most part, and um, worked with, with Tom Newman and worked with several other um, very famous pediatric researchers. And, um, but, but I think what's interesting about Alan is that he has his own very clear perspective and I'm, I'm gonna let him give it because it's awesome. That's good. Great, well, um, thank you for having me. I was last in Dartmouth for my medical school interview. <laughs> and um, I was living in D.C. at the time, and it was winter, and it was like the storm of the century. My flight was canceled, and I had to uh, take a train from D.C. up to here. It was an overnight train. I put my suit on and shaved in the train bathroom and uh, went, you know, got in at 6 a.m., went straight to my interview. So I have to say, the trip out here this time seemed a lot easier. <laughs> And uh, it's really an honor to be here. Thank you, Sean, for having me. Um, thank you for the rest, uh, to the rest of you for coming. And excited to talk about Safely Doing Less. I have no disclosures other than the fact that it's kind of daunting to be here at Dartmouth um, talking about this topic. Because I think that if, if you could identify an institution that really has been at the center of this dialogue, it's here. And I'll, and I'll just kind of do a little perspective on this is your life. I mean, this is uh, Jack Wenberg, who uh, many of you know, who defined unwarranted practice variation many, many years ago. Um, Gil Welsh, I will read anything he writes. Um, when I read his book, Overdiagnosed, um, it was such an epiphany and so eye-opening to me, this concept that um, finding disease does not necessarily correlate to patient benefit. Uh, such, a, such a great book. Elliot Fisher and all of his work on practice variation and accountable care. Um, you guys may not know Brian Lucas yet, but uh, Brian is an adult hospitalist here who um, uh, also uh, is an editor at the Journal of Hospital Medicine um, and serves in, for me as uh, uh, a data analyst, a, uh, a methodologist, a statistician, and in many ways a mentor. So um, uh, he also happened to be my freshman roommate and is sitting here in the audience. So um, <laughs> Brian's a great guy. Now moving on to pediatrics, uh, many of you may know David Goodman uh, and his great work at the Dartmouth Atlas. I, I pass around his tonsillectomy stuff all the time. Um, and then some of you may have heard of this person. Um, <laughs> Sean Ralston, uh, thank you for that very nice introduction. I had to go to Google Images to find this picture, and just right next to it was this Sean Ralston. <laughs> 
but that's we, <laughs> we call it we call we call him Sailor Sean, and then there's there was this younger and slightly more scholarly Sean Ralston on there too. But um, as, as Sean mentioned, we have um, many interests in common, and um, before I knew her, when we finally connected, it was exciting because I realized I had I you know I gave these talks on bronchiolitis where every other slide, which basically said something doesn't work, um, was a reference to, to work that Sean had done. So it was great to connect with her, and, and we've had a, a, a nice couple, uh, couple of years getting to know each other and working together on a number of projects. So what I hope to do today is to review the burden of overuse in U.S. healthcare, to uh, discuss current initiatives to improve value in healthcare, and then to kind of try to bring it uh, to your daily practice and talk about how safely doing less can be applied to diseases commonly encountered in pediatrics. Please feel free to stop, interrupt, comment at any point. So I have to include this figure in, in every talk I give because I think that just distills it all down so perfectly. And this was actually put forth by Elliot Fisher in JAMA in 1999, but it's a, it's a graph that has seen many iterations and it's, it, I love it for its simplicity. And the, you know, the basic idea is that if you start off from, from very few inputs, there we go. Very few inputs of medical care, um, and you add inputs, you get benefits. So if you're in a developing country, you build hospitals, add vaccines, train surgeons, et cetera, clearly you get benefit. But then you hit this plateau point, where as you continue to increase inputs, you start getting harms from over-testing and from over-treatment. And I would argue that here in the U.S., we're way over here, way over to the right, where we have this incredible abundance of inputs, spending you know, way more than any other developed country, but outcomes that don't really reflect it. And uh, you know, every time I hear talks about this, someone tries to put a, a new graph depicting how to, uh, uh, trying to find a new way to depict this relationship between outcomes and costs. And um, I like this one. This is one that my chief resident put together for a workshop we did at, at PAS this year. And it just shows um, per capita expenditures on the y-axis and then life expectancy on the x-axis. And of course, there we are, the US way up on the left with uh, about twice as much as the average for developed countries. Um, but uh, life expectancy that's at least five years behind. And if this relationship were truly linear, in other words, if you got what you paid for, for healthcare, our life expectancy would be somewhere around 96 years. So, so I wouldn't even be at the halfway point, which would be pretty cool. But it, it, um, we're obviously not there. And I, I think it's, it's worth reminding folks that the relationship between healthcare and health um, is soft, right? And so a lot of our health outcomes aren't necessarily related to healthcare and are due to all the other social determinants of health. Nonetheless, we spend a ton of money and our outcomes don't really reflect it. When we talk about this, though, we tend to talk about adult examples. We talk about PSA testing, right? And, and the fact that PSA tests are really good at finding prostate cancer, but that many of us have prostate cancer. If I were to die of another cause and get an autopsy right now, I'd have about a 40% chance of having prostate cancer found. And so lots of uh, overdiagnosis of, of prostate cancer occurring from PSA testing. Um, I think. Um, if there's one quote that resonates uh, uh, with me, it's, it's from the guy who invented the PSA test. His name is Richard Ablin, and uh, he invented it uh, 40 years ago. And he said, I, 
I never dreamt. He wrote, he wrote an op-ed piece um, recently in New York Times after a lot of the randomized trials were finally published showing little to no benefit of PSA testing. He said, I never dreamed that my discovery from four decades ago would lead to such a profit-driven public health disaster. Pretty sobering quote, right, in terms of just our zeal for discovery and pathways and mechanisms and, and testing. And, and so... PSA testing is talked about a lot, as is hormone replacement therapy um, and, and sort of the widespread overuse of hormone replacement therapy that occurred because of the very biased observational studies from uh, the 70s and 80s. Uh, it wasn't until the, the late 90s that large randomized trials were published showing that not only was, was hormone replacement therapy not preventing heart disease, it was actually causing it. It was causing blood clots, strokes, and it was causing breast cancer. So a real lesson about uh, the flaws of observational data and, and the importance of residual confounding, uh, something that's very relevant to pediatrics where we rely a lot on observational data. Uh, mammography, we've heard a lot about the controversy over uh, routine mammograms, particularly in the 40 to 50 age range. We talk a lot about unnecessary cardiac stents and angioplasty. So um, when you, you, know, you pick up the New York Times and read about overuse, these are the things that are talked about, and children tend not to be a part of the dialogue. So what about kids? Why aren't we talked about? And, and I think there are a couple potential reasons for this. One is that the amount of money that's spent on kids is just a drop in the bucket. So if we were to curtail spending in children and pediatrics, really wouldn't put much of a dent in the overall amount of spending. I think there's also this concept that there's no such thing as too much for kids. These are kids, right? Why would we withhold anything on kids? Just test them and treat them. I think also one of the things that has really been, that has sort of dominated the the media landscape has been the issue of under vaccination, right? And so um, kids aren't getting vaccinated. There's been a resurgence of measles and pertussis. So there's this sense, in fact, I was on a call uh, where someone from, an internist from the American College of Physicians proclaimed a bunch of pediatricians online, she's like, oh, overuse is just not an issue in pediatrics. It's all about underuse in pediatrics. No, no, it's not true. So I think, I think that this concept of safely doing less may be even more important in our field. Uh, we talk about the vulnerability of children. Well, yes, maybe they're vulnerable to diseases, infections, and so forth, but they're also more vulnerable to our harms. You think about things like radiation from a CT scan and what impact that has on their DNA and how they have so many years of life uh, uh, to live that, that makes them susceptible to these cancers that we might cause. Think about alteration of their gut microbiome by exposure to antibiotics in the neonatal or infant period and what effect that, what we're learning about what impact that might have on chronic disease and so forth. In general, in our field, there's just not as much evidence. We rely on observational data much more often. That tends to, tends to lead to more uncertainty, and when we're uncertain, we tend to provide more care. And we forget that many kids sometimes just get better on their own, even in spite of our interventions. Um, there's also this sense that old habits die hard. So you think about um, the perspective that children get of healthcare, right? Anytime they feel warm, we take their temperature. Anytime they have a fever, we get Tylenol into them immediately. So anytime they get a scrape, uh, they get a Band-Aid. Anytime they get a bump, uh, uh, they get ice. In general, they're taught, kids are taught very early on that if they have symptoms, they need them treated promptly, right? And this is this sense of medicalization that occurs early on that persists throughout life. So I think that we need to make sure that we as pediatricians have a seat at the table of these dialogues and, and, and emphasize the idea that, that overuse doesn't just involve children. It really kind of starts with them. So 
what are we doing? What are people doing to try to improve value in healthcare? I think it's first worth making sure everyone's on the same page about what value means. And value is kind of a trendy term right now. But I think in most circles, people would agree that it talks about it, it, it's defined as either being quality or outcomes or patient experience uh, over cost. And I like to go back to this figure because I think you can, you can learn a lot about value just from looking at this figure. And I um, like to show this, I, the, our residents do a, a rotation on quality improvement and they try to choose projects. And, and I like to show this to them because um, it emphasizes why I like to focus on the far right end of this curve and overuse. If you are to reduce inputs of medical care and outcomes stay the same or even improve, value by definition goes up, right? If you focus on this side, if you say, I want to increase the amount of blood cultures we get in pneumonia, or I want to make sure that every kid is tested for cholesterol at age nine, like the AAP recommends, um, you are increasing inputs of medical care. In those situations, I'm not sure you even get any benefit at all, but you may increase benefit a little bit, but you may not improve value, right? If you're increasing inputs dramatically with only a small increase in outcomes or benefits, value may actually decrease. So low, the low-hanging fruit when you're working on quality is really, at least from my perspective, over there on the right where reducing harmful inputs or non-beneficial inputs can have a huge impact on value. So lots of stuff going on in this realm. There's books. I mentioned overdiagnosed already. Um, lots of books on this topic. Um, I recommend reading any of them. The last time I gave this talk, actually, Shannon Brownlee was in the audience, so I said, read overtreated. Um, now that I'm at Dartmouth, I'll say read overdiagnosed. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter which book you read. It, um, they all have the same sort of concept and are, I think, pretty important and pretty shocking. I, when I have residents who want to work with me on projects, I say, you have to read one of these books, and if it doesn't make you really angry, then we shouldn't work together. And um, so far, they, they've all gotten pretty angry. So it's worth reading one of these. Um, there's been a lot of sort of national committees, bipartisan groups, partnerships, um, commissions, et cetera, that have gotten together to try to understand um, why costs have run away in this country. What are we going to do about the unsustainable costs of healthcare? And what's been interesting about all of these is that the recommendations and the conclusions tend to always focus around the same thing, which is that we've got to either reduce or eliminate fee-for-service reimbursement. So that's where that part of the dialogue is. Uh, there's been uh, academic journals focusing on value and overuse. Um, some of you may be familiar with uh, what is now JAMA Internal Medicine, formerly Archives of Internal Medicine, and their Less is More series, wherein an article or more in each issue is devoted to this Less is More theme. Uh, they recently added this uh, Teachable Moments um, series, which is, uh, encourages trainees to submit stories about patients who are harmed by too much health care. And recently at Sean's journal, Hospital Pediatrics, um, we sort of copied uh, this and, and uh, the bending the value curve is, is a similar concept where uh, trainees are invited to submit stories about patients who have received low value care. I've had the opportunity to review most of these submissions. They're really worth reading and very interesting. Number of uh, national collaboratives. Um, I think most of you heard of the Choosing Wisely campaign. Some of you, yeah. 
this was an initiative to get physician groups to come up with the top five lists of tests and treatments within their own field um, that physicians and patients should question. And there have been a number of pediatric uh, recommendations, both from pediatric societies and then even from other societies such as uh, ER or family medicine that have included recommendations specific to children. Um, unclear what impact Choosing Wisely has had or will have. I, however, do liken it to sort of the concept of alcoholism, where sometimes the first step when you have a problem is just admitting you have a problem. And so the fact that physician groups are getting together and saying this is a real problem within our own field, um, I think is an important first step. Uh, a whole bunch of conferences that have been going on over the past couple of years, the Lown Institute, I'll talk about them a little bit. Uh, their first conference was called Avoiding Avoidable Care. They're now sort of modified that to call, to call it the Right Care uh, Alliance or Right Care Conferences. Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference, uh, had one here in Dartmouth that some of you may have attended, and they just had another one uh, in D.C. in September, Selling Sickness. Um, we recently formed um, a special interest group within the APA, uh, that's the Academic Pediatric Association, on healthcare value. Um, so the website is up there, and I think these slides hopefully will be sent out to you guys. Uh, the Lown Institute, Bernard Lown is a cardiologist who's now about, what is he, 95, I think, uh, still kicking and doing great. Um, he invented the defibrillator and then has given his inheritance, his, I mean, his fortune to start this foundation. Um, which is really devoted to just making sure that people get the right care. Um, we recently got involved and formed a pediatric council, but, but prior to that, there really, again, this was a, a bunch of cardiologists talking about adult medicine issues. So exciting that uh, they are finally embracing uh, the fact that right care is applicable to children as well. Uh, they uh, will be um, promoting a right care action week, first ever right care action week um, in mid-October. Uh, and we will be, each council has sort of been tasked with coming up with a topic, and our topic is going to be um, antibiotic stewardship. So, Sean, you may be hearing more about that from Sean, but try to use less antibiotics that week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, cost of Care organizations, that's just costofcare.org is a, is a great site. It's, it's a uh, nonprofit that was started by a number of young physicians from various specialties, uh, really just promoting um, price transparency and cost awareness amongst physicians. So let's now move on to kind of the day-to-day -day practice and how we can invoke some of these principles of safely doing less on a daily basis. So um, I'll... Uh, just share with you a typical day, and I, this is a little bit um, over the top here. I actually love my job and don't bang my head that often, but there are some days that are pretty eye-opening. And a couple weeks ago, um, I'll just share with you uh, how my day went. I um, started off the morning in the PICU, and we had, we had a big trauma center, and we had a kid with head trauma, and um, we got to talking about the PCARN guidelines, which some of you may be familiar with. These are the emergency, pediatric emergency Care Alliance Research Network or something along those lines, but they came up with guidelines for head imaging and trauma. And we started talking about these, and an intern uh, who was on our service was talking about a patient that she had seen in the emergency room about a week ago, a week prior, um, and the kid was right on the border of do you image, do you not image? And she um, said they decided they would observe for a couple hours and hold off on imaging, but then at the end of that four to six hour period, the kid wasn't just, wasn't, wasn't perfect. 
They decided to get the head CT, and there was a small subdural hematoma. And she was talking to us, and she said, oh, we felt so bad. And I said, well, well why? And she said, because we almost missed it. And I said, okay, well, what happened to the kid? And she said, um, well, they were admitted to the PICU and got Q1 hour neuro checks and IV fluids and was NPO and then did fine and went home the next morning. And, and it hadn't even occurred to her that actually if they hadn't gotten this head CT, the kid would have gone home and done fine, right? Fixated much more on the, on the actual, the radiographic finding. A couple hours later, my chief resident who was... Um, uh, the award attending that week came into my office because she wanted to talk about a case. This was a, like a nine-day-old who uh, came in with a, just like 37.9 or 38.0 temp at home, and um, kid looked great, was afebrile in the ER, so they sort of did that halfway thing, right, where you get, like, got blood and urine, but they didn't do the whole board, they didn't give antibiotics, and they admitted the kid, uh, watched him overnight, no more fever, kid looked great the next day, but the urine culture was growing 5,000 gram negative rods, and the chief resident you know, wanted my reassurance that it was okay, that that wasn't a UTI, that it was okay not to treat that. And I said, based on you know, my interpretation of the literature, including some, some recent stuff we had done on, on the role of a urinalysis, um, I thought that the, that certainly did not represent a, a, a UTI and that she would be justified in not treating that baby. And... Um, but then I posed a question to her. I said, now, what, would, what, what, if, what if this kid comes back in three days uh, and has a rip-roaring UTI, has a, a high fever and has, you know, 100,000 gram negative rods? She said, oh, I'd feel awful. And I said, um, well, why? And she said, because the kid, you know, obviously it had a UTI in that first visit and I could have done something about it. And I said, well, what about another explanation? What if you actually cause that UTI. What if you introduce the bacteria, that 5,000 colonies that are maybe sitting in the urethra or on the glands of an uncircumcised boy, what if you cause that UTI by catheterizing the baby? I said, oh, that's an interesting perspective. And I would argue that that's just as likely an explanation had that scenario occurred. Um, she said, that's interesting. But what was, what was fascinating about her reaction is she would have felt much more bad about the idea that she would have missed treating that UTI rather than that she would have caused that UTI. That didn't, the, the, the latter didn't really, bother. and that's sort of the whole omission, commission, error thing, that, that we tend to be um, much more fearful of omission errors, of not doing something and patients doing poorly than doing something and patients doing poorly. And then for the trifecta, that night I'm driving home, and I'm sort of thinking about all of this, and I'm listening to NPR, and there's a a radiologist who's being interviewed, and this was a series, maybe some of you heard this um, where students uh, years ago were interviewed, med students were interviewed about their experience in, in gross anatomy and kind of the relationship with the cadavers. And she had had a cadaver that had died of, of breast cancer and that had inspired her to become a breast imaging specialist. And at the end of this interview, which was mostly talking about gross anatomy, but she said, well, I want to say something. I want to say that um, you know, I am a poster child for mammography because I actually had got breast cancer many years later, and, um, but the mammogram saved my life. I thought it was just fascinating that a breast imaging specialist who had to be aware of the whole concept of overdiagnosis and the controversies behind whether or not mammograms are beneficial, um, it was so clear to her that this mammogram had saved her life. So the relationship between all three of those stories, which occurred within a very short period of time, was that in many ways value is in the eye of the beholder, right? One person's great care 
if you if you pose it a different way or or sort of couch it a different way, um, may not be great care. And it's and that's there's a lot of nuance there. And and I think that um, that's part of why it's important to make sure when we tell these stories, we're we're being as unbiased as possible. And and stories are very powerful. This uh, Sean mentioned Tom Newman, who is at UCSF and. When I was working with him, he wrote this essay in um, the BMJ, and I loved it. It was called The Power of Stories Over Statistics. And he talks about how kind of motivating stories can be and how a story about a baby who got kernicterus um, uh, in that life could have been saved by universal screening with, with uh, Billy Rubin how that has motivated policy change, even if that policy change doesn't really uh, fly in the face of science. And, and I agree with Dr. Newman. I think stories are incredibly powerful. I think the problem, though, is that the stories that we always tell are stories like that. They're the stories of the healthcare system failing to diagnose and treat fast enough. Right? Those are the stories that the media loves. Those are the stories that we tend to hear. Stories like this, Rory Staunton. Anyone remember? Rory Staunton's story? Maybe this was a... This kid's from my neighborhood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So Rory was a... This is a tragic story. He's a, is a 10, I think, 10-year-old boy a couple of years ago who um, had gotten a scrape on his arm, got, went to an emergency room, had vomiting and, and fever, and so was diagnosed as just having an acute febrile gastroenteritis, was given IV fluids, had some labs checked and was sent home. This was in New York City. And the labs, it turned out, had a, they'd gotten a CBC, which had something like a 50% bandemia, but nobody in the emergency room saw these labs, or if they did, they didn't react to it. So the kid was sent home. The uh, kid came back the next day with uh, disseminated group A strep sepsis, presumably from the scrape on the arm, um, and he died. And this was on the front page of the New York Times. Um, for like a week, and it created this huge uproar. And it actually wound up leading to statewide reform, such that every hospital in the state of New York is now required to have sepsis screening protocols. So again, I mean, this is a sad story, and don't get me wrong, it is a real shame that this kid wasn't sort of appropriately diagnosed and treated. But he died of an infection. He didn't die from healthcare. He died from an infection. And the story led to statewide reform. Now, I want you to contrast that to some other stories. These are kids who died from healthcare. These are two kids who died from wisdom tooth extraction. Okay? They got sedated for wisdom tooth extraction. One of them died during the procedure. One of them went home, uh, went to sleep, and never woke up. Some have estimated that wisdom teeth extraction are unnecessary 60% of the time. Okay, I got them taken out. My dad's a doctor. He didn't even stop and think about it. Dennis said they needed to come out. They came out. I'm sure that's true of, of many of you. Um, but not very regulated, not a ton of evidence or science behind it. And in this case, two deaths from healthcare, and you know, these stories are buried in their local papers. This was an outbreak of meningitis, some of you may remember. This occurred a couple of years ago. Um, this was from epidural steroid injections that were contaminated with aspergillus. So I, and I believe the compounding pharmacy was in, somewhere in Massachusetts. And um, they, you know, some, somehow the, the steroids were contaminated and they were sent out uh, uh, around the country. And this is how many cases of meningitis. I think there were something like 75 deaths, all adults, not kids. Um, 
this story broke, and of course, everyone was very, very angry. Um, the, the focus, though, was naturally on the compounding pharmacy. How in the world could they have screwed this up? How do you get aspergillus into all of your steroids? Where is the regulation behind this pharmacy? Meanwhile, I'm reading about this, and I'm like, well, what's the deal with these epidural steroid injections, right? And I'm furiously looking on PubMed, and I'm finding that there's really no evidence to support it. Finally, it's like two weeks later, there were a few little articles saying, wait, 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 these epidural steroid injections, there's really, they're no better than placebo. There's no evidence behind them. But again, the focus wasn't really there. This is a little girl named Kaylin Sosa, who I, I um, had the honor of giving a, a talk um, in her honor a couple, or a couple months ago in Texas. And she was a little girl who, a perfectly healthy, beautiful, smiling girl that you see there on the left, who bonked her head. She fell and bonked her head, minor bonk, went into an emergency room. Um, she, mom was just, you know, being careful, right? Bring her in, I want to make sure. She got a head CT, which showed a little something, right? How many times does a head CT show this little something where you're not sure what it is? So the radiologist said, recommend MRI. I said, okay, well, she's not gonna sit still for an MRI. And they didn't wanna just try sedation without intubation. So they innovated her and they sedated her and they brought her to the MRI scanner. And somehow in the MRI scanner, um, the circuit to the ventilator became disconnected. Nobody really picked it up for a while. She suffered anoxic brain injury. So she now has severe cerebral palsy, still alive, still you know, brings her parents much joy. But um, this, got, this story got picked up by the Wall Street Journal. But what did the Wall Street Journal want to talk about? They want to talk about MRI safety and how we can enhance a culture of safety in MRI scanners. How could someone not be better monitored in the MRI scanner? Of course, no mention at all of the fact that this kid didn't need head imaging to begin with. Jahai McMath, you guys may remember her story. She, um, uh, this was a big deal in the San Francisco Bay Area where she had a tonsillectomy done for obstructive sleep apnea. She had acute bleeding uh, in the immediate post-operative period, arrested, and um, wound up being declared brain dead. Got a ton of press, but the, the uh, what the media focused on here was the fact that the family was unwilling to accept the diagnosis of brain death. So this got drawn out and is still, to this day, still drawn out. Tonsillectomy, right? Tonsillectomy is what Jack Weinberg first described in his, in his practice variation work many, many decades ago, and it persists. There is a ton of variation in tonsillectomy. More importantly, the largest, and we do it now, of course, for obstructive sleep apnea, in contrast to the infectious reasons that we did it decades ago, the main trial that's been published on, on tonsillectomy for OSA showed no benefit to early tonsillectomy over watchful waiting in terms of the primary outcome. To be fair, there were some benefits in some of the secondary outcomes. But what was most striking to me is that a lot of the kids in the watchful waiting arm, their obstructive sleep apnea got better. So we do too many of these, and in this case, I have no idea if it was necessary in her or not, um, but she's not alive. So let's talk about some, some disease-specific uh, conditions and uh, see how we can uh, invoke um, safely doing less. I, I'm guessing Sean has probably talked to you about bronchiolitis before, so hopefully it's a little bit refreshing to hear someone else come out and nag you about it. Um, the, the guidelines were just released, the guidelines of no. Um, they've been praised by some, but uh, seen as contentious by others, and I think that 
probably the most contentious, uh, one of the most contentious recommendations is to not use albuterol, right? This was a, a pretty big departure from the prior guidelines which said, go ahead and give it a try. You give someone an inch, they take a mile, right? So everyone gives it a try. So saying don't do it was a big change and, and has led to um, a lot of pushback uh, from this recommendation. The justification uh, for not giving albuterol um, really comes from the lack of any impact on uh, what the guideline committee deemed to be um, meaningful outcomes. So admission rate, length of stay, duration of symptoms. This was well described in the Ngodomsky's Cochrane Review in 2014. The thing that some people hang on to is this subtle impact on the clinical score, right? So 0.2 to 0.4 points on a 17-point scale. Statistically significant, clinically questionable. But, as people argue, if it helps even a little, what's so wrong with a little trial, right? And this is, so what about these more meaningful outcomes? My goal is to make patients better, and make them feel better. And if they can feel a little bit better with albuterol, uh, why not give it to them? Well, I would argue there's a couple good reasons for that. One is this idea that albuterol begets albuterol. If you see that albuterol trial as a diagnostic test, I would argue it is a diagnostic test with an unacceptably high false positive rate. Reason being that if you look at the trials, about 30% of patients seem to respond even in the placebo arms. If you think about bronchiolitis, it's an interesting disease. It's a waxing and waning disease, right? So that's why when you're on rounds in the morning, the intern's exam is different than the student's exam, which is different from your exam if you actually feel compelled to examine the patient. The, so so it, you know, any given patient is going to wax and wane during the course of their illness. There are also competing interventions. Kid comes in huffing and puffing to the emergency room. What do they get? They get Tylenol for their fever, they get an IV put in, and they get IV hydration, they get aggressively suctioned, they get that albuterol nav, they may get myriad other things. You then go and see a couple other patients, you come back, you may or may not even try to do an objective assessment in the studies they do, but in real life, we're probably not quite as good about that. You come back and the kid is better. Well, what have they become? They've become an albuterol responder, right? even though 30% of them improve even if you hadn't given albuterol. We want it to work, right? We've, this has not been well studied, this idea that there's a placebo effect on the part of providers, but there actually is pretty good data from Ian Paul and some of his recent work that there's certainly a placebo effect on the part of parents taking care of children. He showed, some of you may remember the, the study comparing agave nectar with honey and, and um, another placebo, or in nothing rather, and it showed that agave nectar, which is inert, was better than nothing. Um, and um, this idea, and that's from, from parental perception of their kid's cough. And so there's this idea that we want kids to get better and therefore they seem to get better. And, and the problem is that albuterol responder label can be detrimental, right? It leads to more albuterol for sure. Um, it may lead to more asthma therapies. It, it certainly heightens parental expectations for future visits, right? My kid got that fancy breathing machine last time. Why aren't you giving it to him this time? And it strengthens physician convictions that it works, right? If you give that trial of albuterol, and 30 minutes your patient's better, well, I'm now convinced that albuterol is an effective therapy. But of course it's not, right? I mean, there are 
side effects that are included in that clinical score. There's the tachycardia, there's the tremors, there's the hypoxemia. I always find this fascinating. I love to ask residents um, why kids seem to desaturate, which actually, if you look at the meta-analysis, there is a very small but uh, significant reduction in the O2 sat after albuterol. And they always tell me the same thing. They say VQ mismatch, and they're pretty proud of themselves that they can say VQ mismatch. But then I say, well, why is there VQ mismatch? And then they stop and they think about it. They say, You're right, if you're bronchodilating, you're improving ventilation, why would that cause hypoxemia? And the answer is that it doesn't cause bronchodilation, but you get systemic absorption of the drug, which then causes pulmonary vasodilation to areas of lung that aren't ventilated, right? So that's why in some patients you get hypoxemia, which may actually then in turn drive hospitalization for a kid who otherwise wouldn't have been hospitalized. And this was an, a fascinating study that um, I think came out after the guidelines were published that took kids who were innovated in an intensive, in a PICU in Southern California, and, and they were innovated for respiratory failure, and they gave them a couple puffs of albuterol. And then they used something called indirect calorimetry to try to assess oxygen consumption or metabolic demand. And what they found is that the, the oxygen consumption went up by 50% immediately after the administration of the albuterol and was still up by 40% an hour later, still even elevated three hours later. So I often hear, okay, fine, I'm not going to give albuterol to the happy weezer, but to that kid who's huffing and puffing and struggling, of course I'm going to give a trial of it. Well, what you're doing to that kid, you're taking a kid who's already struggling to meet their metabolic demands and you're increasing those demands by 50%. These guys were onto this concept 50 years ago. Okay, I, this is like my favorite paper of all time. Um, what I love about it, it's a review paper on bronchiolitis, and what I love about it is you could copy and paste it, submit it as a review article now, and I think it would get published because nothing has changed in 50 years. <laughs> And I'm just going to read this to you. Since acute viral bronchiolitis is thus a self-limited disease of relatively good prognosis, the principle of primum non necessary should temper frustrated anxiety to do something, anything, to relieve severe dyspnea. Simple physical exhaustion may determine the fate of an infant laboring to meet his metabolic requirements for oxygen. His energy should not be frittered away, love that, by the annoyance of unnecessary or futile medications and procedures. Rest should be treasured. I, I used to follow this with a slide that said no frittering, and we actually had that up on our ward for a while. Don't fritter with bronchiolitis. Um, this is a study that essentially proves what these guys were saying 48 years prior. This was published in the New England Journal in 2013. It's a fascinating study. This was looking at not albuterol, but racemic epinephrine, another uh, adrenergic agent, although more alpha than beta, as you guys know. Um, but they, they randomized patients with in, inpatients with bronchiolitis to four different arms. They either got racemic epinephrine or placebo, and they got it either around the clock or PRN on demand. And, and the patients who got it PRN or on demand got it a lot less than the patients who got it around the clock. And what they found was that there was no difference between patients who got racemic epinephrine versus those who got placebo. But patients who got more treatments did worse. Whether it was epinephrine or placebo, they had a longer length of stay and a longer oxygen requirement. And what I love is how they sold this to get it published in the New England Journal. They say that the strategy of inhalation on demand or PRN appears to be superior, right? I would argue that the better word is less bad, <laughs> right? And I argue that in a letter to the editor that they kindly rejected, but it, it, um, it, 
how else can you explain this unless it was just random finding, which it might have been, but patients who got anything done to them more often didn't do as well. They were bothered. They, we were not treasuring their rest. So I think, I think hopefully this explains to you why I think this is just that, you know, sort of cavalier trial of albuterol may not be a completely benign thing in bronchiolitis and why I support Dr. Ralston, your recommendation wholeheartedly. <laughs> Uh, duration of intravenous antibiotics, another low-hanging fruit in the concept of value and safely doing less. Um, the reason why I get excited about this topic is, first of all, I very much appreciate antibiotics because, gosh, they, gosh, do they work, right? Kids come in with these conditions, they get their antibiotics, and they certainly get better. They look like this two days later, right? But what do we do? We say, you cannot go home. We say you need six more days or eight more days or four more days or whatever the number du jour is. We have cemented this idea that IV antibiotics, even in patients who have improved, are superior to oral antibiotics. We're afraid that they're going to get it again, right? We don't want them to relapse. These were serious infections. Um, we're concerned. I hear this not infrequently, we're concerned, especially in younger babies, that they can't absorb the antibiotics. But when this has been studied, even in neonates, neonates absorb <laughs> oral antibiotics perfectly fine. Compliance is a real concern, and I understand that. Um, I think that um, that's where an understanding of your family and, and how you think things will go at home um, may affect your decision about antibiotics. So I buy that as a valid concern. Um, and I think in general, for a lot of these things, we just don't have great evidence. So we have this sense that infections from these bacteria are bad and that more is therefore better. There's not much evidence because if you take kids who have improved and um, uh, you want to figure out how long to treat them, um, bad outcomes are rare, right? And, and yet even small differences in those bad outcomes uh, may be meaningful. Just as an example, if you were to try to look at, say, a 5% versus a 10% recurrence risk in a patient with a UTI, uh, you would need almost 1,000 patients for that randomized trial. If you were to, say, compare three days versus 10 days of IV antibiotics for bacteremia, and I want to make sure that, you know, I power my study to be able to detect a difference of 5%, an absolute risk difference of 5%, you need 1,000 patients to do that. It's just not going to happen. Right? It's just there aren't enough patients, and doing prospective randomized trials is hard enough in pediatrics that that's going to be hard to do. So instead, we rely on practice variability to try to guide us to at least get a little bit of evidence uh, in, in making these decisions. And um, practice variability mostly is bad, right? And, and this is shocking. This is looking at osteomyelitis. Um, and, and the percentage of patients in each hospital, this is in, a FIS, in the FIS database, that were transitioned to early oral therapy, i.e. did not get a PICC line. Hospital 1, 10%. Hospital 29, 95%. So that's just shocking. And this isn't because patients in one hospital were dramatically sicker than patients. It's just institutional practices, right? Maybe it's how easy it is to get a PICC line, supply-induced demand. This, is, this exact graph is... Looks, it looks exactly like this on the same study in UTI. It looks exactly like this on the same study in complicated pneumonia. Okay? In all these studies, tremendous variation across hospitals. In all these studies, never any evidence that prolonged therapy has any impact on outcome other than causing PICC line infections, right? Or PICC line complications. So we take advantage of practice variability because we argue that in a sense, 
practice variability is a natural experiment, right? And so it's not patient factors that are driving, uh, that are confounding uh, how long uh, the treatment is provided for. When we rely, when we don't have even practice variability to rely on, we rely on experts. We rely on this guy, the Bible of infectious disease. I rely on this book a lot. It's a great book. But I'm surprised about something about this book, which is that, that it's the only expert recommendation guidelines that I'm aware of that does not require any kind of grading of the evidence or even references. So you can say, group B strep bacteremia, 10 days of IV antibiotics. You don't need to say strength of evidence. You don't need to cite any data for that. You just move on to the next organism. So I'd rather hear, I mean, it's great to hear what a bunch of experts have to say about it, but I'd rather hear it with some evidence to support those recommendations. And actually, if you dig into um, some older literature, uh, we, we found this quote, the Red Book is designed for people who make decisions. It cannot waffle on an issue. It has to make a positive recommendation even if the data are complete. This was a Red Book chair back in the 1990s. So there's this idea that we can't waffle, that we just, you know, we need to tell pediatricians what to do and they'll do it. I got into this, uh, I attend both on the ward and on the PICU, and I got into this a couple years ago um, when I was attending on the ward. I came in on a Monday, but there was a kid, this kid had been seen um, Friday in urgent care. Came in with fever, looked okay, got blood and urine. Uh, the UA was sort of grossly positive. Kid got a shot of ceftriaxone, urine cultures, blood cultures were sent. Kid came back on Saturday morning, looked great, had defervesced. Um, but the blood and urine were both growing gram-negative rods. Pediatrician that day said, well, kid looks great. Give another shot of ceftriaxone, bring him back the next day. Did that, kid comes back the next day. Well, this time it happened to be a peds ID fellow who was moonlighting in urgent care. And they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Gram-negative rod bacteremia in a five-week-old, that needs 14 days of IV antibiotics. Okay, you can imagine to the family particularly, if they're happy, smiling, well maybe they weren't smiling at five weeks, but they were close. Um, that was sort of a shock to them, but everybody sort of obeyed this recommendation and sent the kid in. And I came in on Monday, kids still looked great, except for all the pokes from the repeat blood cultures and the, and the IV attempts. And I sort of said, well, where does this recommendation come from? I mean, I understand um, that perspective of needing more treatment for bacteremia, um, but is there really any evidence to support this? And I was pretty shocked to find that there was nothing on how to manage bacteremic UTI in any age group. There was a few tiny studies that had looked at uh, a few clinical factors in, in patients with, with bacteremic <laughs> UTI, but no one had really looked at how long they should be treated. So we decided to look at it, and we started off by just looking at our own institution, and we looked at um, bacteremic UTI uh, uh, in infants less than one year of age, meaning same organism in your blood and your urine. We reviewed something like 1,400 UTIs or 1,200 UTIs over about a 12-year period and found 55 cases of bacteremic UTI and found that even within one, our own institution, parenteral antibiotics means either IV or IM, um, there was tremendous variation in how these kids were practiced with no predictor variables other than age. So the one thing that predicted a prolonged uh, course was young age. But even if you looked at the less than one month age range, variability all over the map. 
Perhaps even more striking was that outcomes were so good. So of these 55 babies, nobody got sicker uh, during treatment. Um, nobody had a relapsed UTI or bacteremia within 30 days, whether they got zero, one, two, three days, or whether they got greater than 14 days. So we found this to be mildly convincing data, but we were certainly conscious of the fact that it was a very small sample size and that really people cared about was that less than three month age range more so than the maybe six or nine month old. So we then um, went ahead and formed a collaborative effort uh, between 21 different hospitals uh, at 11 institutions and were able to collect information on 250 infants who are less than three months of age with bacteremic UTI. The figure looks exactly the same, as you can see, right? So the, the way these kids were managed, um, still a ton. We, there was a lot of intra- and inter-institutional variability. Um, and few more predictors here. So we were able to, to determine that if you had a non-E. coli organism, you got a longer course. If you had a positive acute, uh, a positive blood culture, repeat blood culture during acute treatment, um, you got a longer course of the only something like six babies had that. Um, so there were a few more predictors, but even looking, putting all those predictors together, they explained only a very small fraction of this overall variability. So patients weren't really being treated longer because they were sicker or because they had other risk factors. Instead, we sort of had this focus on 3, 7, 10, and 14, which really goes with our obsession with football, right? So you, <laughs> field goals, touchdowns, multiples thereof, right? This is sort of the, the randomness. My department chair attends on the ward. He, he, he says we can only provide courses that are prime numbers. That's his approach. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is kind of the randomness. And, and once again, in this study, and by the way, the caveat to this is this was only ward patients. We didn't exclude any picky patients. So it was only kids admitted to the ward. So you can't say if a kid happened to present um, really, really sick. That's a, probably a different, you know, you can't certainly include them in, in our conclusions here. But the outcomes were once again great. Three, I think, three, uh, six kids total had a relapsed, no one had relapsed bacteremic UTI. Six kids had a relapsed UTI caused by the same organism. No difference in uh, the treatment duration, the IV treatment duration in those kids who did versus those kids who did not have a relapse. So putting this all together, I think philosophically, moving forward, if we're going to embrace value and embrace safely doing less, I think it is important to kind of reframe um, how we think and how we practice. And a lot of it just comes down to the words that we use. And um, we hear the, I hear the word conservative a lot. And I think if you go back to this graph here, you know, the people that would advocate treating down here would, would probably say, well, I'm just conservative. Right? I'm conservative, and therefore, I think I want them to get two weeks of IV antibiotics. But I think that if our number one goal, if our, if our main obligation as physicians is to do no harm, um, I think that conservative is probably not the right word. I think conservative would mean doing less. I think in areas of ambiguity, conservative would mean doing less. And probably the better word for justifying treating longer might be aggressive. Right? I'm aggressive and therefore I want to treat in a prolonged fashion. But I think sort of reframing how we talk about conservative is important. This question I hear a lot posed by residents. How will this test change management? Um, I hear it on rounds and I, and I love it when, the, when our residents get to the point where they're thinking that way. But I also think it's still not the right question because a lot of tests change management without benefiting patients. Right? You can get a 
potassium level in a patient on albuterol, and it might be low, that will change management because you might give them potassium. But they didn't need it, right? Because there's no evidence to support potassium replacement in someone on albuterol in kids, maybe in the adult world where they have arrhythmias all the time, but at least in kids. You know, that, and so, so tests often change management without benefiting patients. I think that the better question when you're thinking about a diagnostic test is how will this test benefit my patient or how will the benefits of this test outweigh the risks? And what this does is it forces you to think not just one step ahead, like what you might find, but what you might do with what you find, what, what you find and why doing that would be beneficial. Okay, so it really, it, 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 enable, it, it requires a little bit more thought, but I think it's, it's a more value-driven approach. Sort of along the same lines, um, and we actually did a workshop on this at PAS this year where we, we tried to shift the focus at case conferences. So the, the, the conferences that you do with trainees, morning reports, noon, noon conferences, where the, the emphasis really seems to be on making the diagnosis. If you think about how we present patients, right? We go through this huge laundry list of differential diagnoses. And, and you know, just when we think that we've listed everything that it possibly could be, someone else raises their hand and says, well, it could be this, right? So what we're teaching trainees is all of these things could be going on and then trainees are then required to come up with every test possible to rule out all of those things. And some of the, you know, we, we come up with strategies to, to try to, you know, reduce that to some extent, but that's still what happens. I mean, our boards at our noon conferences, our morning reports are still full of the lab tests and the differential diagnoses. And I think that if we, instead of saying, okay, guys, what does this patient have? I think that if we say, okay, guys, how can we make this patient better? might be a little bit more of a value-driven approach. Oftentimes, making it better does mean making the diagnosis, but not always, right? And if we focus on making the patient better, it leads to a more judicious use of lab tests. Similarly, once that patient does get better, there's a couple ways that we can frame it. We can say, my treatment made the patient better, or we can say, I gave a treatment and the patient got better. And this happens in the ICU all the time, right? We throw seven different things at a patient, and they get better, and we all want to take credit for our idea, right? So, oh, the blood, he finally stabilized after the blood transfusion, but you go and look, and they got, you know, two boluses before that, they got their antibiotics started, maybe they were put on CPAP, whatever, and they got better, and all those things have different time courses for when they work, but um, misattributions of causality occur constantly, particularly with sick patients. And so I think we have to be very cautious about attributing credit to our interventions, just like the albuterol. And lastly, sort of to, to bring this all full circle, we do need to tell stories. Telling stories is really important. Personal narratives have tremendous impact in terms of motivating um, change. And we are actually at our, at our SIG session at PAS this year, um, we are having a, a contest called the value of stories. And we are much like uh, the bending the value curve section of hospital pediatrics. We are encouraging trainees to submit stories of patients um, who have had received low value care. And we heard from one trainee already who said, well, that could pretty much be every patient I've taken care of in my first year and a half of residency, <laughs> which was, which was a little bit disconcerting to hear and say, it's not at my institution, but, um, I, it, we need to tell stories, but I don't think it's an either-or. It's not just telling the stories. It's not just presenting statistics. It's both, right? So back up your stories with science. Go to the evidence. 
make your own evidence by doing clinical research. Um, that can move us towards safely doing less. So, wow, I finished quickly. Happy to uh, answer any questions, and thank you very much. <laughs> you don't need to read the book. I don't remember the, the data all that well, but I remember hearing that, that our practice patterns are primarily determined by, by where we train. Um, and, and that even when we go to a, a setting where other people do things differently, we still do, do it the way that we would train as residents. So I'm interested in all the variation that, 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 that you demonstrated. Um, I tend to think that, that, that institutions we do things one way, yeah. and we carry that with us for the rest of our life. I'm not sure that, that your data shows that. I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. I we obviously I can't say anything about um, training, you know, and, and what impact um, how you trained had on, based on our data from the bacteremic UTI. But I think you're absolutely right, and I think it's why, you know, at, at Places like Kaiser, which really have very different um, fee structures and, and reimbursement structures, um, a lot of this stuff still occurs, right? So even though there's not financial incentive to do more, in fact, there's, there's really financial incentive to safely do less in, in those and other accountable care organizations, but you have most of the doctors trained elsewhere. And so they bring practice patterns uh, with them, and it takes, it takes decades to change your practice patterns. You're provided with new evidence. Um, you're, you're not ready to change your practice yet. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I think that's why many of us have really tried to focus on training and focus on um, getting these stories and these lessons disseminated in training institutions. We are actually. Um, Part of our SIG uh, activity is to come up with a curriculum on value uh, that's going to be hosted at the uh, American College of Physicians website. Um, but it's, it's something that we hope will be disseminated nationally. A lot of institutions, um, training institutions, are already uh, providing curriculums on value to their trainees. But um, it's going to take a very, very long time. And, um, I think we're just starting to carve away at it, but your, your point is a great one. I guess, Dr. Allen, we have the last question. Okay. This first question is the last one. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> any thoughts about doing more to ultimately do less? Such as, for instance, I have irritable bowel patients. Um, and me and my resident, we kind of talked about it yesterday, where they come in and it's abdominal pain, it's nonspecific. And if you had, possibly there's a theory that says if you get blood work, ultrasound, non-invasive, and maybe for instance like an endoscopy, as long as the indication is really there and not just doing it to get it done, you'll ultimately save them for multiple ER visits, multiple admissions, and multiple CT scans. Um, I mean, I think, I think if that is really true, then that's high value care. I mean, I think that, that if you are a, however you do it, the problem with that is that's sort of, it's playing on the placebo effect to some extent, right? It's, it's giving patients this, it's, and I think we've created that, right? We have created this expectation that you need those tests, and that's the only way, you know, you can feel better about what you have if you've had those tests. So I think that 
if that's true, which I would, I would urge is probably worth studying, um, but if that's really true, then boy, we have, we have fueled it and we need to really take a step back and, and be better at communicating with our patients to begin with. But the media is at fault, the direct-to-consumer marketing that we have in this country, which we have, barely occurs elsewhere in the world, is at fault. All those things fuel the, that sense from that family or that patient that they need all those things to feel better. But, I, but again, I mean, if that's happening and you're saving all these visits, it makes sense. So we don't want to further, you can, we don't want to, further, don't want to be flippant either, but so everybody help patients now by going home. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I want to say that Brenda Zervich, um, here at Dartmouth, has done that study, your, your study. So, um, so the, 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 the whole where you train. Um, it was in JAMA last year, and it was a group out of George Washington. Oh, it was a no. no, it's November, December, and Gamma of last year. I should ask Wade. Thank you. You know what I realized? My grand rounds in 